I finally mastered uh, how to set those financial boundaries with family. I now only do it when I want to and when I have the financial means to. And that means that sometimes people aren't happy because they expect you to bow down as a daughter or as a niece or as a granddaughter um, and, and open your, your checkbook. But uh, I've had to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. Today I have on the guest seat, Gigi Gonzalez. She is a financial educator, influencer, speaker, founder of The First Gen Mentor, and the author of the upcoming book, Culture and Cash. During the Great Resignation, she quit her 10-year corporate career in financial services to pursue her true passion, teaching financial literacy to young adults. She's been featured in dozens of publications, including the New York Times, Business Insider, and more. Lives in Chicago. We're going to learn more about Gigi's rise to fame in the personal finance space right now. So welcome to the podcast, Gigi. Oh, Jamila, you're so sweet. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to get to talk to you because I really feel I love uh, the way you speak about money, but I also just love the way you share your life. I'm not as much on TikTok, even though I know that's where all the uh, young, hip people are <laughs> like yourself. But um, from your Instagram account, I just love how you share your journey. So not only like the personal finance tips themselves, which are always great, but also like personally, like evolving into an entrepreneur and um, you share like tidbits of your life that I think really impact your financial journey and entrepreneurial journey, which I think people relate to a lot. So I want to get into all that and learn more about you. So again, just welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So Gigi, I, so one of the things that you said, or I just said in the bio was you quit your 10 year corporate career during the great resignation. So let's talk about what that great resignation was and then what led you to quit your job. And then I want to go back a bit about your career path and trajectory. Sure. Let's talk about it. So for you, like what made you decide to quit your job of 10 years, that stability and that income to do what you're doing now? Yeah, it definitely wasn't an easy decision. Uh, I think a lot of people romanticize the opportunity to quit your nine to five, to be a boss babe and work for yourself, make your own schedule. But that was never an ambition of mine ever. Um, I never had any goals to be an entrepreneur. I very much am an accidental entrepreneur. And the way that that all went down is, you know, up until recently had a pretty traditional life living, you know, a nine to five job, 
corporate job with benefits, had my retirement age planned out. That was very much my life. But um, I started posting TikTok content in March of 2021. My account went viral a month later. It was bizarre how it all went down. And with my account blowing up, I started receiving a lot of opportunities. And it was cool because I'm like, oh, somebody wants to pay me 300 bucks to go teach a financial literacy workshop. I was already doing this kind of work for free in my community as a volunteer financial educator for a nonprofit. So I'm like, oh, somebody's actually want to pay me 300 bucks? Like, cool. Like, like a nice little side hustle, right? So the thing is, the kind of job that I had was in investment management. And for anybody that doesn't know the field, it's just an extremely regulated industry uh, which means that if I was to accept any work, any paid work outside of my nine to five, I had to have written approval from my employer. So I submitted the request, not thinking it would be, you know, no thing. And right away it was denied. They said, nope, this is a legal and a reputational risk. We cannot approve this request. Uh, and that was disheartening because I'm like, I think this is good community work to spread financial literacy to others. At first I was just like, okay, well, I guess this is the end of this road. That was fun, even though I never started. Uh, and I'm so thankful that I had friends and family that were like, hold on, what are you doing? Like, there's an opportunity here. It wasn't me. I was ready to just like keep doing my nine to five as I was. But I am so thankful that I had friends and family that encouraged me to at least think about it. And um, their reasoning was like, this is your passion. You've been doing this for two years pro bono. Now there's an opportunity to be paid to be a financial educator. Uh, and the reason that I knew I would have the ability to do that was because they knew I had savings because uh, all my friends and family knew that I was saving aggressively to quit my job in the future uh, to for around the world trip. I had this big dream of traveling the world for a year and then resuming my corporate career. So I was squirreling away money. So they're like, don't you have like that big pot of money that you can kind of use while you explore this? And I'm like, no, that's for my dream. That's not for like entrepreneurship. What is this? So, so, you know, at first I was super against it. And then I warmed up to the idea and um, I resigned a month later. And here I am today, a little over two years later. <laughs> right. Well, this is like, that is the epitome of stay ready because you just never know. Stay ready. So you don't have to get ready. And what I love talking about in terms of the financial journey or the life journey, it's, you know, they're one and the same because you just never know, you know, you might think you're doing something for one reason, and, you know, you, you have this money set aside for this, but then it really helps you do something completely different that you can't even foresee. Like you can't, you can't even know from this place you're standing, how it will help you in the future. So I want to go back a bit because you said while you were working in your corporate career, you were teaching um, and volunteering, teaching about finances. So let's go back a little further in your past a bit, because what, you know, what was your upbringing like? And how did money come into play in that? And then when did you get conscious of being that you needed to be good with money or at least a good steward of money? Yeah, great question. So my background, I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants. Uh, I'm a first generation American. I grew up in a small agricultural border town in California, in Southern California. When I tell people I'm from SoCal, they're like, oh, LA. I'm like, no. <laughs> they, so it's like two hours east of San Diego. It's a very, very small agricultural town. Uh, so you know, growing up, we in an immigrant household, we certainly did not have regular money conversations. Really, the only thing I heard about money growing up was 
there isn't enough of it. So don't bother asking us for any. Uh, so what that looked like was when the Scholastic Book Fair came to our school and I wanted a little money to buy a book, the answer was always no. Uh, if we had a field trip with our classroom, I got like five bucks for the field trip. The same thing, like five bucks to get me all the week for my school lunches. So I always kind of was told like, no, you do not ask for more money because we don't have it. And uh, growing up, it was very common to see my family go through, you know, financial emergencies, but tap into extended family or friends for loans. That was very normal. Oh, we have this financial hiccup. We're going to hit up so-and-so. Uh, and vice versa. And then my parents would be the ones to loan money and, and back and forth. Uh, so that was very much my experience in, in my immigrant household. That's very relatable. So for so many of us, first gen immigrants and that community, you know, of people having to come together, you know, when you don't have a lot of resources, you have to make the most of what you have. And a lot of the resources that we do have, while it not be may not be money as immigrants is family or connections, if you're lucky enough to find or have a community where you land. With that now, as you grow up, so you're now going to high school, college, what did you think, what did you think you wanted to do? You know, what was your goal and how did you end up in your career? To be honest, I wasn't sure. Um, my, my immigrant parents always instilled in me that I had to go to college to have a better life than they did, but they couldn't offer any guidance beyond that because they had never been to college themselves. So the goal was always to go to college and graduate, but there wasn't a clear picture of what that looked like. So career-wise, I, I lacked that guidance, but I always knew that I was good at, good with math. I liked math. Math was easy to me. And I liked something about the notion of working with money. I didn't know in what capacity. I thought I wanted to be a financial planner. Then I interned with somebody and I'm like, no, this isn't for me. But I kept getting like images of a bank, of me working at a bank. Again, I didn't know in what capacity. Uh, but my very first job straight out of college was doing uh, auto insurance claims for progressive insurance. Uh, so still handling money in some way, right? Paying people for for their auto claim after a car accident. Uh, that job was, was, you know, I have some interesting stories from that job because if you think about it, people aren't like their most happiest after a car accident. So they're just really difficult to work with. And they're screaming at you like you're the one that ran into the back of their car when you're just trying to pay the settlement claim. Uh, and then, you know, after that, I finally uh, switched to industries because I just didn't feel professionally fulfilled. I had an econ degree for my bachelor's and I'm like, this doesn't feel like I'm putting my econ degree to use. So I um, switched to investment consulting. I did that for a little bit. And then I most recently was in investment management where I specialize in investment performance reporting. And during that time, what were your personal finances like? I often hear people say, you know, they're good with math. They have a great maybe career with num with dealing with money, but it doesn't always translate into their personal finances. So what did that look like for you navigating your personal finances and your career at that time? Not great. <laughs> and I say not great because I had a lot of challenges as a young adult in my 20s. Um, you know, even though I was making more money than my immigrant parents ever had, um, I was still struggling with money. And that was really frustrating to me because I'm like, hold on, I did everything, quote unquote, right. I went to college. I got like a recession proof degree. Um, you know, I have a stable corporate job. Why am I still struggling with money? And and yeah, I learned it's because I, I didn't know how to manage it. I had never been taught how to manage it. And, you know, obviously they don't teach this stuff in school either. So what that looked like was, you know, having financial emergencies of my own, you know, like having 
bad bosses, bad work situations, uh, you know, toxic relationships, nightmare roommate situations that I couldn't get out of because I didn't have enough money to escape these spaces. So yeah, my twenties were rough. It was a roller coaster. (laughs) So how did you turn it around? What was the like point in which you did something different? Yeah. Yeah. I think in my late twenties, I just, um, I, I hit this point of just like, why is it so hard? Uh, and I, I, I recognize, oh, it's cause I never was taught money. So then at this point I'm like, okay, I can't keep making this excuse of like, well, I don't know how money works. So I'm just going to suck for the rest of my life. And I decided to self-teach myself uh, how money works. So, um, I think I did it like most people do by just kind of reading a bunch of money books all the money books that I could get a hold of. And then once I learned what I learned, that's when I'm like, this is unfair that like some people get taught this at home and some people don't and the people that don't get screwed over. So that's why I felt the need to like pour back to my community. I lived in Phoenix at the time and I Googled how can I spread financial literacy to others? And I came across a nonprofit where I could be a pro bono educator. What did you do? Like, so you said you started to realize and learn management skills for your money. So what were the things that you started to do to turn your money around? And what was your situation? Were you in a lot of debt? Did you have a spending like problem? What what was your financial kind of snapshot at that point? Yeah. So after learning about money management through reading over 50 personal finance books, I learned like the power of, of goal setting and, um, you know, if coming up with your why, right? Because that's going to drive you to keep going and making that financial progress. And for me, that's when I had this big dream of, of uh, traveling the, the world for a year while I was young. I didn't want to have to wait until a maybe date in the future that may not come, right? So many people don't make it. You just don't know. Uh, especially with the pandemic, we just saw how things can change very quickly. Um, so that was very much my, my purpose and what kept me motivated. And I sat down with my money and I said, all right, how are we going to make this happen? I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but I want to take a year off work. <laughs> like That's a big goal. So um, I put all my ducks in a row and I saw, okay, I have some debt. You know, I've been pretty passive with my debt this whole time. I had student loans, about $30,000, $35,000 in student loans. I had a car note. Um, I had some credit card debt. Uh, I was making minimum payments because that's what I thought. That's what I thought you had to do. As long as the bill was paid on time, you were being responsible. I didn't realize you were supposed to be more, more proactive with your debt. I had no savings, which is why I kept uh, finding myself in these bad situations that I couldn't get out of. I had no savings to get me out. Um, so once I kind of saw what my income was and how my income, I was working at the time in San Diego with a very high cost of living. I saw, I'm not going to be able to make the progress that I want to make soon with the, my low pay. I mean, at the time I think I was making $60,000 and, and the high cost of living in San Diego. I'm like, yeah, this, I'm just going to keep running in place. So, uh, I talked to my then boyfriend and I said, what do you think about, you know, moving somewhere more affordable? And luckily he was on board. Um, so we left, we left San Diego in 2019, uh, sunny San Diego, which a lot of people, they will happily stay in debt. And I know I have a lot of friends that will do that because they just love San Diego. And for me, I'm like, I need to get myself in a better financial foundation. So I moved to Phoenix, uh, Arizona, not too far. I was still driving distance to my family and friends. Uh, but that helped tremendously because the cost of living at the time in Phoenix was much more affordable than it was in San Diego. And I also got a nice pay bump, um, with my new job in Phoenix. So uh, having the additional income, having the lower cost of living really helped me make progress towards building savings and paying off that debt. I love that you shared that. Now, with this new job that you took on, just because 
this is an idea or concept that we talk a lot in, you know, in personal finance as advice for people, like move from high cost of living to low cost of living. And of course, there are hurdles with that. Like you said, like I'd be probably one of those people. Maybe it depends on how bad my situation was that I really care about the where, like I really care about where I live, especially if I'm close to family and friends. So it'd be harder for me to relocate. But for some people, you know, it's not as hard, right? And so with that, how did you plan for that? So you, it seems like you went to a whole different company. And is that true? Or did you stay with the company? What was that like? Was it looking at apartments at the same time and then also looking for job opportunities? I want to get a little bit into the details of that for people who are now considering like how they could start thinking about a move like that. Of course. Yeah. And I mean, anybody that's considering it, honestly, it's one of the best financial moves I made. Uh, no pun intended, like moving from San Diego to Phoenix, because I would not be where I'm at had I not made that big change. And um, and I would like to acknowledge it's not possible for everybody to move because you have family commitments, you know, legal things going on. Uh, but if you are more flexible and you have the ability to move, I would encourage anybody to look into it. And it doesn't have to be forever. You know, I was only in Phoenix uh, for two and a half years. I probably could have left after a year and a half, but it was a pandemic. So we stayed a little longer. Uh, and look at me now. I'm in Chicago and I love Chicago. Um, and, and Phoenix was rough, you know, because just, you know, you're, I wasn't surrounded by like my Minded people, you know, um, this is very, think about the time it was 2020, 2021, like Trump was in office. Like it's just not what I was used to in, in California. And I'm born and raised in California, but how was the process? Yeah. I knew that the easiest way to make the move would be if I had a job in hand, because I had considered, uh, what if I just move, try to live off savings and apply, um, but I'm like, let me try first applying while here in California, because uh, that way I won't have to deplete any sort of savings. And and I was um, very lucky that I interviewed that my skill set was marketable and they actually offered me a job right away. Um, so that was helpful because then I was able to start my new job in Phoenix, look for an apartment. The issue that we had was it wasn't just me. I had a partner, right? I had my, my, my then boyfriend, my, he's my spouse now, but that was tough because he also did not have financial means to just kind of quit and live off savings. And I wasn't about to, <laughs> I didn't have money to be able to pay for both our expenses. So he actually had to stay in San Diego um, that summer because he didn't have a job. He could not move to Phoenix uh, until he found a job and it took him a little longer. Uh, he's a recruiter. So yeah, eventually he found the job and eventually he joined me in Phoenix. But, but yeah, that was, that wasn't an easy leap, you know, we, and even our relationship was strained. Cause I'm like, I did not sign up for this long distance. And he's like, it's six hours, you know, and I'll be there soon. So yeah, yeah, that, those, those are not fun times. <laughs> All right. So now you are working in your corporate career. You started your business, kind of your social media accounts on the side, sharing out personal finance and realized you can't do both. There was a restriction, which is interesting because I remember when I worked in corporate America, you know, I guess I never, I probably would have been under the same constraints because I worked also for, I worked for an insurance company in the financial investment side of things. And I'm sure there would have been regulations. I just didn't ask any, I didn't ask permission. I figured I'd ask forgiveness over permission. Um, and so I just kept it separate, right? So you probably did the right thing by probably asking in advance. But I know there are some people who there's like, it's a struggle between do I share with my job what I'm doing or do I just keep it under wraps until they find out and then I'll deal with the consequences if there are any. Then um, I, I did have someone um, who's on the show and, you know, they came, they work full time and they came on the show to share, you know, some content, some information. And they emailed me and said, well, I, my job found out about this. So 
you have to remove the episode. So like things like that do happen, right? For you, what was that like in terms of decision-making? Were you, were you just like, I'm just going to say up front what I'm doing because I don't want to get in trouble? Or what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I would have definitely been caught eventually just with the power of TikTok and how it reaches different pockets of the internet. Um, but but yeah, at first, you know, um, it was nice because nobody knew who I was when I had like a small following. And I, I call it like my feral era because I was just able to be unhinged and say whatever I wanted to say. Now I have to filter myself. I have sponsors. I have interested parties. So it's a very tamed down version of what it used to be in those early days. But yeah, I mean, at the time, um, I knew that if I did podcast interviews and if somebody bumped into it, they may be like, oh, she's like now teaching this stuff. And uh, I knew it wouldn't be a good look. And and the thing with me, it w- I remembered that I had to get approval because it was sort of like a quarterly reminder. We had to sign something electronically every quarter of like, remember to report your transactions, remember to report any paid outside work. So I, I knew I had to report it. And, and it was a sort of thing that like, it wouldn't be a slap on the wrist. I would have gotten fired. Yeah. And I just knew I didn't want to have that in my employment record. Now you moved to Chicago. Was this before or after you quit um, to become a full-time entrepreneur? After I quit. Yeah. Okay. And what prompted that move? Because that's kind of, you know, not as low a cost of living as Arizona. And then how now I would love to get into your entrepreneurship journey and stabilizing your income and what that's like. I love that you asked me that question because nobody's brought that up. And it's such a good point that, that, yeah, right. I left all my friends and community in San Diego to go to Phoenix. And that was very much a sacrifice to, to get away from that. And also the weather is not as fabulous as it is in San Diego. There was a lot that we sacrificed to get into a better financial foundation. But again, it was temporary. And then with time, once we had savings, once we had paid off debt, uh, you know, we were making more investing in our, in our long-term investing uh we felt we're okay to be able to like live life a little more, you know, cause we were, we were um, just doing the bare minimum, you know, bare minimum needs in Phoenix to get ahead. And once we had that financial foundation, we're like, again, we can breathe a little and live life. And we said, well, where is that? Where are we going to move to be with like-minded community? Um, we're child-free. So we knew we wanted to be like in a bustling city, you know, surrounded with other young professionals so, so yeah, Chicago is not as cheap as Phoenix was. I would still argue it's cheaper than San Diego, but um, Chicago just has so much more to offer me as a resident here than, than what I got in value from, from San Diego. And I'm sorry, what was your, your question? You had a follow-up question. So it's kind of, it was a two-parter and you moved to Chicago, but yeah, why Chicago? And then because that was after you became a full-time entrepreneur. <laughs> That's a good question. And the reason we, a big reason why we decided on Chicago was because I still was a little uncertain about my entrepreneurship journey. Um, you know, there was nothing guaranteed. Uh, at, and at the time I thought, you know, if I fail and if I don't make, uh, you know, like a livable income off working for myself and I do need to go back to my corporate career, Um, Where is the best place to pick up where I left off? And um, I identified that a big financial hub like New York or San Francisco or Chicago would be a good place to do that. And um, there's just so many opportunities here for my old corporate career and for my new entrepreneur career uh, to be able to do that. And that helped me feel more safe, you know, as opposed to if I was, I don't know, and let's say I had moved to Bali, (laughs) 
like, where would I start working? So, so yeah, that, and, and I had friends here too. So that helped me feel welcome right away. That's so smart um, and strategic. And, you know, I think thinking about your life and some of your decisions, I know not every decision, it's almost like you have plan A, but there's a plan B in case things don't work. So you kind of like, it's almost like chat, you're playing chess with your life and making, um, seeing how things play out in advance. And okay, if this doesn't work, what's my fallback? And I love thinking about my life, honestly, in that way. I always say like, it's important to strategize and think ahead, even if for the worst case, and if you're okay with the worst case, so let's just say entrepreneurship didn't work out. Okay. I'm in a place in, you know, a city in which my degree will help me land something because I have more chances to do something here. I just think it's really smart. And the other thing I like that you said, I want to highlight is a temporary sacrifice. So a lot of times, like when we think about doing things with our, to get ahead with our finances, or we think it's like deprivation, and we're not thinking about what we get because of it. And we're not thinking that it's temporary. So I love that even though it was maybe a little hard, there was adjustment being in Arizona, it leapfrogged you <laughs> forward and like, look what you were able to accomplish and do and still get back to being in an area that you love, being around family and friends more often. So just wanted to point that out. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And you know, it's something that I don't talk enough in my socials because I haven't figured out how to talk about it without it being braggy. But it really is good motivation for anybody that is in that like deprivation stage, paying off debt stage, that like it gets better. That's what, and I'm living that now. And I'm so thankful for that younger version of myself that put in that work because like now I live in a high rise in Chicago that I pay way too much money for. I know we pay too much in rent, but we're, we're, we're happy to do it because we know we can afford it. We have doormen that take care of us. And this is just something that that 20 year old geo that was running through all these financial hardships could have never even dreamt of. <laughs> hey, journeyers, I have a special treat and offer for you. I'm right now working on my first book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom, a step by step guide to achieving wealth and happiness. It will be out officially December 5th, and I'm working to get it in the hands of as many people, journeyers, as possible. I know that this book has the ability to change lives. And so the way that I'm thinking about doing that is by tapping into my journeyer community. That's you. And here's what the deal is. I am waiving my speaking fee and podcast advertising fee for the next few months, and instead asking organizations and small businesses to pre-order copies of my book, pre-order my book in bulk copies. So what does that look like? You can either have me come speak to your organization or company to talk about general personal finance topics, to do a Q&A. I would zoom in and do that. Or you can tap into the awesome community of journeyers who wants to hear more about your business if you're an entrepreneur and advertise on the podcast. And all you have to do is pre-order bulk copies. That means multiple copies of my book. It is going to be easier than you think it is. I don't have that many spots to be able to offer this, but I wanted to get this out to you if you are interested in not only helping this book reach more people, but getting a lot of value out of it too by me speaking to your organization or company or advertising on the Journey to Launch podcast. Now, if this sounds like something you may be interested in, let me know. Email me at hello at journeytolaunch.com. Also go to journeytolaunch.com slash bulk orders. That's B-U-L-K orders, O-R-D-E-R-S for more information. I hope to hear from you soon. 
going from your steady paychecks, I know you had like a, what we call FU fund. That's what I like leaned on when I jumped into entrepreneurship because I'm like, wow, okay, before I was making these steady paychecks, <laughs> now I'm going to have to replace that or at least get to a point where our family is okay. So for you now, what was it like now that you quit your full time in entrepreneurship? How did you adjust, if there was an adjustment at all, to getting you know full time paychecks that you expected versus the sometimes just instability of entrepreneurship income? Yeah, something that made it easier for me to take the leap was uh, besides having 14 months of my savings, because again, I was squirreling money away for this round the world trip. I also had very low living expenses because I just had a very basic frugal life. I think my expenses at the time were $2,000. And honestly, it might've been 1800. It was pretty low for my portion of, you know, I do have the, the privilege of splitting expenses with somebody else. I also would like to acknowledge that up until recently, I was pretty healthy, you know, because I know that people, depending on what sort of chronic issues they have, medications, they may not be able to take that leap. So at the time I, I was pretty healthy and I felt comfortable taking that leap. So yeah, I think at the time I, even though I had 14 months of my living expenses, I didn't want to go through the whole money trying to make entrepreneurship happen. I told myself, I'm going to give myself six months to see how I do with this. I will clear out six months of my savings and see what happens. Um, and about three months in, I'm like, ooh, there's opportunity here. Keep going. And and I kept going. And now I'm happy to share. I was recently able to repay myself those six months and restart my little sabbatical fund for some time in the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask about that, that trip, which we can like kind of get to later about you kind of delaying it to pursue your entrepreneurial dreams, but what that looks like. So you've also shared, um, you, you kind of alluded to it just now about like your health, right? Like health, there's so many parts of our lives that impact how we navigate our life and our finances. And so, yes, there's a privilege of being healthy without any medical bills. There's, you know, a privilege of having family support, um, right? And somewhere to land if you need help or a partner that has health care that then you, you know, as an entrepreneur like myself, then don't need to search for um, health care. With that, you shared about your health journey um, recently. So can you share what that looked like and how that did impact your finances and your business itself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Jamila is referring to a video I posted on my socials about how I had a hysterectomy in March of this year. So for anybody that doesn't know, a hysterectomy is a procedure where they remove your uterus. And um, the reason they removed my uterus was because I had um, pretty large uterine fibroids, which are very common uh, in women. I think the statistic is that 80% of women over their lifetime will have uterine fibroids. And I know that they're very prevalent in, in the Black community. Um, they run strong in my family. So I knew it was just a matter of time until these fibroids caught up to me. I just didn't think they would catch me at 33. <laughs> Most of the women in my family got them in like their late 30s or early 40s. So I was a bit early. Uh, but that came out of nowhere because um, I didn't have any symptoms until I landed in the ER one day. Uh, and even the doctors were like dumbfounded that they're like, you really didn't have any symptoms or any pain. I'm like, nope, not until I came to the ER. Uh, so yeah, I went to the ER and they told me you need surgery in a month. <laughs> And I said, hold on, I'm writing a book. I don't have time for surgery. <laughs> and they said, you need to get this thing out because it's kind of concerning how large it went without you noticing. They were concerned that it could be cancerous. Um, thank God it wasn't. Uh, but yeah, that was very much, you know, a curveball that was thrown at me. And I was dealing with a lot, you know, uh, mentally and emotionally 
and physically when I had my surgery because um, I actually had to get an abdominal incision. Uh, for a lot of hysterectomies, they can do smaller cuts, but but with how big it was, they had to remove it entirely intact if it was cancerous. So um, I basically had a C-section with no baby. Instead of giving birth to a baby, I had a, my little uterine baby, <laughs> uterine fibroid removed and my uterus. Uh, Listen, I've had three C-sections, so I know that's painful. <laughs> that's very painful in the recovery, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have so much respect for for women. And, you know, that was a big reason why I was child-free, because I didn't want to go through, like, the birthing process or a C-section, and I still happen to me. But, but yeah, it's I oof, anybody here that's listening knows how tough of a recovery that is. And it was tough because, uh, you know, since I, I do work for myself, I no longer get pay time off. For, for six, it was a six to eight week recovery um, for me to feel all healed up. And on top of that, it was during what's a very profitable month for us financial educators. It was during financial literacy month in April. So again, losing potential income, big income from that month, uh, and then also not having any sort of supplemental income to carry me during my pay time off, during unpaid time off. Uh, so yeah, so like I said, it was, it was tough, a tough spring for sure. Uh, dealing with the law mentally, emotionally, physically, but I'm so thankful that financially I did not have to worry because I had things in place to support me if something like this had happened. I had a health savings account to help pay for medical costs tax-free. I have health insurance that was able to cover a lot of this. Uh, And then I also had my emergency fund to cover um, that unpaid time off. Uh, And I tallied up my expenses. I think I spent about four thousand uh, dollars. I, you know, I spent two nights in the hospital, and it was a big surgery. I had follow up care, and um, even though it was a lot, I mean, who, who wants to pay four thousand dollars on medical expenses? It still didn't put me into debt. It didn't set me back financially. So I'm, I'm really thankful that I took ownership uh, of my money journey and uh, took care of myself, my future self. Should things like this happen? Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the possible or the loss potentially that you had of income during that time. And, you know, I think a lot of people push off doing things for the health because it's never the right time, right? Like even now I'm thinking, oh gosh, I need to like make those doctor's appointments, but I'm in book launch mode and, you know, I got one who has time, but you need to make time because, you know, just like with finances, right? When you try to push things away or put it on the back burner, you're going to have to confront it sooner or later. And the more you push it off, like the possibly worst things can be when you do now, when you're ready to confront it or when it can't even be hidden anymore because the problem is there. So I just think there's a lot of correlation there between people with like avoiding money and people avoiding what they need to do for their health. Because sometimes it's, I, I hate to say it's too late. It's never too late in my opinion, but for health reasons, sometimes it can be if you put things off too long um, before you take accountability or at least you look into it. So I do want to just say, that I know that it's not the same for everyone. And there are people who have less help, stability, and things in place to help them take time off or to look and value their health. But that is so important because without being healthy, without understanding what you need to physically like move about in the world and be functioning, it can impact you so much more like down the road. Yeah. Health is wealth, you know, so none of the money in the matter, money of the None of the money in the world matters if we don't have our health. So I hear you. I'm the same way, Jamila, that I'm really busy. And I'm like, I don't have time for my eye exams. I don't have time for my dental appointment, but but we got to make time because otherwise, like you said, stuff catches up to you. 
Right, right. The other thing you mentioned that I want to talk about, because I know so many people deal with this, is boundaries with family and friends, uh, financial boundaries, general boundaries. And you've been pretty open about navigating your relationships. And so I'd love for you to explore or us to talk about what that looked like for you um, as you were starting to become more financially astute. You know, how did that impact your personal relationships? And then we can talk about boundaries. Yeah, boundaries are hard, um, especially if you come from like a very close knit family, like I do. As as a Latina, we value family and that that closeness to each other, knowing what's going on with the other person, knowing that you can depend on each other should you need to. But as I started learning about how money worked, I learned that uh, in order for me to. Uh, be my best self and to be able to support others in the future, I had to put my oxygen mask first and I had to make sure I was okay. Uh, And I learned that I couldn't keep pouring out of this empty cup, you know? So like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast episode, I grew up where it was very normal for money to be exchanged amongst family for whatever sort of emergencies. And I partook in that sort of culture a long time, but uh, I decided that there had to be like a limit Right. And that's when boundaries came in. And and that was really hard, you know, because uh, family expected me to do it all. You know, if, if there was an unexpected medical expense, I was the one that was reached out to because, hey, you have good credit. Right. That means you have a credit card with a ten thousand dollar limit. Can we charge the surgery for so and so on this credit card or, hey, I need money because this broke down. Can you send me you know a check? So the younger version of me would cave in and do all these things because I was in taught, I was instilled that that's how you show up for family. But as I learned more about money, I said, you know, this, this isn't helping me get better with money. And it's actually leading me to like resenting my family because I feel that I'm being held back. So I finally mastered uh, how to set those financial boundaries with family. I now only do it when I want to and when I have the financial means to. And that means that sometimes people aren't happy because they expect you to bow down as a daughter or as a niece or as a granddaughter um, and and open your your checkbook. But uh, I've had to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> and 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 yeah, anytime you set any sort of boundaries with with family, it can be a little comfortable because they're like, hey, like you're not being a good daughter or like you're not being a good family member. And you just kind of have to remind yourself that you're taking care of you so that you can be stronger later. Do you have maybe any checks for yourself in place that you can share of like when you, you, you shared some already, like when you can and when you're comfortable doing it, but any other ways in which you evaluate helping like someone that is coming to you? Because yeah, I feel like another thing we can maybe discuss that's the opposite end of this is when we like I'm a hyper independent person. And so I don't ask people or a lot of people for things and, you know, I get it on my own and, or there's a small group of people where it's just like, okay, I need the support. Like, and it's not financially, it's just like really emotionally. Right. With that said, if I get, there's a hint, whether it's family or friends, but mostly family, if I get, there's a hint of any dependency on me, (laughs) like that it might be coming down the road or that you're being friendly because in the future you may want this, like, then I, you know, I, I don't know if I overthink it or if I try to stop it before it happens, but I realized that some of my relationships I've stopped from growing with 
family members because I don't want to ever be put in that position. And I'm like, well, if I don't talk to you ever, or if I talk to you once a year, there's no way you're going to reach out and ask me for money because like, we're not that close. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Like that might be something I need to unpack in therapy, but it's like, I think there are, are a lot of people who feel that way. Like they, they, they close themselves off from maybe family members or relationships in general because they don't want to feel, you know, the obligation or they don't want to have to say no. And so I think talking about this is important because you could be missing out on important relationships and meaningful relationships because a person may not ask you for anything. Or if they do, you have to be okay with saying no and not feeling bad. You can feel bad about it, but not knowing that you're not a bad person if you say no. So for you, how are you like in real time or in like feeling or processing the feelings that come along with saying no to family and yeah, anything else that you want to share on that? Yeah, sure. And first, I want to piggyback on your point on kind of like holding back because you anticipate that ask. And I do want to say like, it can feel beautiful to give and support others when it's on your terms, but it's when your arms being twisted, that it just doesn't feel good. And it eventually leads to resentment. And I have found myself too closing off in the sense where, you know, before I would have shared with family, oh, I got this really cool project and they're paying me X amount and I'm really excited. And now I don't because I know they're going to be like, oh, she's got money. (laughs) And, you know, I have money, but I also have a life of my own. I have my own financial goals. I have business expenses, you know, so all they see is like, oh, she's got money, you know, so so I I can totally relate to that. Something that I keep in mind besides like, do I want to and am I financially able to? I also will ask myself, is this like a life or death situation? You know, so um, recently my grandfather was hospitalized, you know, so for me, it's like they need the help because this is, he's, is a medical issue and he's really bad. Another thing I'll keep in mind is, well, how are they doing with their own financial choices? You know, and some people may see this as a sign of disrespect. They see it as like, no, like you show up for family, you don't question what they're doing. I disagree. I'm from a different, um, just camp and, and that's, I own that. Uh, but for example, you know, I'll have people hit me up for money, people with vacation homes. So, I don't have, I don't even have one home (laughs) and not definitely don't have a vacation home. And I've told these same family members, Hey, maybe it's time to downsize and get rid of this vacation home that you don't even go to anymore because you don't have time, you know? So, so yeah, so situations like that, when I'm being tapped on the shoulder for financial support, but like, you're not um, making smarter financial choices, even after I've given you some guidance, knowing that I know how this stuff works, if you're still blowing me off, I'm like, now you, you need a budget. That's what you need. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, that's, those are valid, definitely things to ask for. And again, there's the, I think between whether it's, you know, your culture, um, no matter where you're from, or even just um, that age dynamic where if you've grown in a place or in a family in which, you know, the adults know, like, this is how it works and you're not supposed to question it. And if you do, again, it's disrespectful or you're upsetting the course of things. That could be a shock to family structures or that are used to doing things one way. And I think that's really hard. It's harder than people sometimes talk about and it impacts even how you make money. I would say that there's probably some people listening who can probably thrive more, but also stop themselves from thriving. So not even just like having connections with family, they stop, but thriving in their lives because they don't want to be the one that people, you know, I've seen that. Um, they don't want to be the one people depend on, or they don't want to be the responsible one. You know, I think that they don't want to be the survivor, you know, the survivor's guilt in the other sense of the fashion that now I have to take care of it. So I'd rather not, I'd rather just uh, kind of be with like, like everyone else. 
Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, because I, I think at that point, that person has to master how to be comfortable um, with those boundaries because it's it's an act of self-care, right? Like of, of prioritizing your needs, you know, because it is beautiful to give to others, but you can't forget about yourself along the way. Right. So where are you now with your personal finances and your financial journey? Do you feel like you have it figured out? Are you still learning? What are you doing for yourself to make sure that you can take that trip that you put off before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I think it'll help to kind of paint a picture of, you know, life when I had my W-2 job. So before when I had my stable corporate job, the goal was to build a lot of savings and to resign and then to go back to my corporate career. Because I actually surprisingly really liked what I did in my old job. A lot of people hate their corporate job. I actually really like my job and my boss and my coworkers and the company I was at. Um, the other thing that was a big financial priority when I had my corporate job was early retirement. I was very much, I believe you're a part of the FIRE movement too, right, Jamila? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, my, yeah, my FIRE, yeah, I was going to retire at 45. Like I was, I had everything projected and ready to go. And um, that was actually a big reason why I also was resistant to entrepreneurship because I'm like, hold on, I have like a clear path to retirement at 45. And now I'm taking a completely different road, which I don't know where it's going to lead. You know, what's been surprising is that now that I work for myself, I don't feel that strong desire as much to like retire at 45 because I yeah. love what I do. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I do not want to be doing this until I'm 70. I definitely would like to retire before then. But I think now if I get to do this kind of work, if I do it through 50, 55, I think I'd be okay, honestly, or maybe part-time doing it part-time. Um, so, so that's changed. That's changed. I, I've eased off the gas pedal on heavy retirement contributions. I think at my highest, I was contributing 35% of my income. Right now, I think I'm doing 20%, 20% of my income into retirement. And then um, do I feel that I'm like set? Um, no, I, f I feel that I'm secure. I feel that I'm secure in the sense that I have uh, savings. I probably have 10-month emergency fund. I have an emergency fund for my business. We don't have any debt. Um, we have, uh, our, our investing portfolio, right? Our retirement portfolio, which again, that'll probably at this current rate, it'll probably get me to retire. Yeah. I'd say 55, 60. I'd love to maybe purchase a rental property at some point. So that's something that we haven't um, made progress on. We just started. And then that other big goal of, of, yeah, a possible sabbatical, you know, I, I'm still figuring out what that's going to look like, whether I do take some time away from this entrepreneur job for a little bit and then maybe go back to it. Or, you know, I would love to be able to keep doing this abroad. I have a lot of friends that have online businesses abroad um, and to go to Spain for a year or Italy for a year and, and have this lifestyle. So we'll see. We'll see where life takes me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think that's the beauty of the journey too. What you explained is that with more stability and the way that you earn money. So there's a flexibility in the way that you earn money now. Like it's not tied to being at a desk or for a boss. Like you are your own boss, which is not always a good thing, but <laughs> it's helpful because then you can, you can then decide like if you want, like you just said, like you eased up on investing because you, you enjoy your lifestyle now. You enjoy the balance of work and, you know, fun. And I think a lot of people, what pushes them to financial, the fire movement, what pushed me to it is because the, the balance is not there. It's a lot of work, not a lot of fun. You're not enjoying time and the time and energy freedom that you want. And so, but as you start the journey, as you get closer to that, whether you find something that you love, but then you're also making enough money to satisfy your lifestyle needs and financial goals, you can start like thinking about, okay, do I want, you know, do I necessarily want to put all my money and wait? Because I think investing aggressively 
and this early retirement goal that you had or that I once had, and I still kind of have it, I'm still going to achieve it, still puts off living your life a bit, right? Just like if someone's waiting until they're 65 to quit their job, like you said, like not everyone like makes it. Life is short, right? And so I think this is so important that you learn to live life now and find that sweet point of like loving what you do or at least enjoying it where you don't hate it. And then making money and making enough money to save and invest for the future, but then also provide for your lifestyle needs. Yeah. And it's going to look different for everybody because we all have different values, different goals. But yeah, finding your own sweet spot is what's going to help you. So Gigi, please tell us, I know you're working on a book. It's going to come out in January. I want to hear more about it. And then like, what, what are you going to be, what are you doing where people can find out more about you? You're so sweet. Thanks, Jamila. Yes. So um, you can learn more about me on my website, thefirstgenmentor.com. All my socials are tagged there. I'm on TikTok, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And um, if you go to, uh, my book is called Cultura and Cash. So if you go to culturaandcash.com, you can sign up for a waitlist to be notified when the book launches in January. And I would like to give a shout out to Jamila, who uh, gave me an advanced praise for the book and is supporting the launch. So thank you so much, Jamila. Yes, I cannot wait to, um, you know, get my hands on the physical copy. You sent me the PDF already and it's great. And so I'm really just wishing you the best. And I mean, you'll be hearing a lot more from Gigi, I think. So keep a lookout for her and we'll tag all her for socials and what she mentioned, the book, all that in the show notes. So thank you again, Gigi. Yeah, thank you again for having me on. I told you that uh, when I went to my first FinCon in 2021, you were one of the main stage speakers and you were so inspiring to me that I was just getting started and I love seeing you shine. I'm so excited for your upcoming book and uh, thank you for inviting me into your space. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me in the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.